What's going on, Adventure Fam? It's another beautiful day in the neighborhood here at Point Noir, home of the Point Noir podcast. I'm your host. You know me by now, Jerry the Third, aka Kimono Jack, because I keep the kimonos on Deckington. Glad you guys are joining us for another awesome session here at Point Noir. It is session 15. We just out here chugging along. I listen back to the episode sometimes. And I'm like, damn, I be thanking people a lot for all the reviews and ratings and the messages and stuff. But real talk. It means a lot, and you guys have a million other things to do. So the fact that you'd even spend a moment going out to review on iTunes or sending me a message on Instagram, it means a lot because I know we all have busy lives. So keep that up. Keep rating, keep reviewing, keep subscribing. We appreciate it. It helps the show build momentum, and we're out here rolling, you know. Soon everybody's going to know what we got going on here. So without further delay, let's introduce today's awesome guest, and I'll see you on the other side. Joining us today at The Point is Mr. Chris Campbell Esquire. And I want to make sure I emphasize the fact that he is a lawyer because I don't feel like I did that enough in the show. You can follow him on Instagram at TeamLikeTheSoup. It is spelled just the way it sounds and it will be in the show notes. So Chris and I have another interesting origin story. We first met as teammates and students at the University of South Carolina. We were both on the men's track and field team. We both took Chinese. We both started learning Chinese together. And it's just been amazing to watch his transition from being a student of the language to being a practitioner of the language to becoming a trained lawyer over there in China and here at the States. He's just had an incredible journey that has spanned the globe, and I'm so glad he could share his firsthand experience and perspective of being so deep in the Chinese culture. So I hope you guys are ready to learn about what's going on over there in China because it's a lot popping. Sit back grab a refreshing beverage of choice, and get ready to enjoy today's session. Hey, Chris. So glad you could make it here with us. How are you feeling today, bro? I'm feeling easy. (laughs) Good afternoon. Hey, man, love that energy, bro. I'm telling you, I could use it today, so definitely our listeners can use it. And I always get juiced up doing this show, but um, you're such a positive guy. We go a little bit ways back from college, man. I'm so glad we could uh, spend a moment to actually catch up and, and you know, record it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I appreciate your offer me to be on the show. And, you know, you say way back in college, and man, it's hard to believe that was um, some years ago now. And uh, I'm excited to catch up with you and, and chat with your uh, fan base here. Yeah, man, a hundred percent. So, let's just let's get into it. Let, let's talk about a little bit of your origin stories, as in terms of travel and adventure, and some of your big trips. You know, I definitely know some sequences we could talk about, but I'd love to hear from your narrative and your perspective. Well, absolutely. One, I appreciate you. You know, calling it an origin story that makes me feel like a like I'm in Marvel or something. Dude, you know that's how we live. We're all about this anime, this Marvel life, this cartoon stuff. Like, I know you all out. Chris and I actually used to be in Chinese class together in college for two semesters. Uh, and, yeah, so we're, we're about this cartoon life. That's true. That's true. Uh, but to your point, um, that's actually where it all began. Um, you know, I guess when I was in middle school and high school, I always wanted to study abroad, but didn't know exactly, you know, what that looked like and how that worked. And so... Um, like Jerry mentioned, we were at the University of South Carolina, go Gamecocks, um, hey, hey. at the Darla Moore School of Business. Um, we were taking Chinese. 
And um, that's kind of where, where I got hooked that, you know, learning the Chinese language and the culture in a classroom is one thing, but having the opportunity to go and actually put that into practice is another. So in summer, 2010, summer of 2010, I took my first trip to China, um, which is in Beijing for a few months. And, um, and I was hooked. I knew I had to get back abroad. And, and that led to uh, studies abroad in London and other parts of Europe. And then eventually living in Beijing for a couple of years and, and traveling across Asia. Um, that's, but let's start with that. that. That's my adventures in a nutshell. Um, we'll, we'll kind of expound on that as we go through this. A hundred percent. And I want to take it back just a little bit. So we can kind of get the full context. Where are you from? Where were you raised? What sort of environment did you travel growing up? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I sure can. Um, I am from the bustling metropolis of Irmo, South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just outside Columbia. Um, you know, if you hit Columbia back up, you'll hit Irmo. Um, but I was a raised, I was a southerner raised by two northerners. My parents are from New York and Philadelphia. My dad's from the Bronx and my mom's from West Philly. Near what bx all day east coast beast coast philly i didn't know that about you bro oh absolutely yeah yeah um you know you know i let, let, let don't let the southern draw from time to time fool you yeah chris what chris is trying to say run them get done up you know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so that that's kind of my background that's where i come from um in terms of you know my parents and you know where i grew up and i spent most of my life in columbia um, until, you know, I was 20 and went to China for the first time. But I spent a decent amount of time in New York, you know, visiting family up there uh, growing up. So, uh, you know, I've been privileged to travel through that and uh, travel through track and field. My illustrious clarinet um, career in high school, I got to travel the country doing that in high school. Okay. Okay. And, I mean, traveling up and down the East Coast, we were definitely on some of these trips together uh, on the track and field team. I didn't mention this. We're, we're going to get all the business story and so – Chris and I originally met uh, not only as classmates, we were both in business school doing our thing. And actually, were you an international business major? I feel like you were. <laughs> Most people do, but what they do not realize is I was rejected from that program. <laughs> oh, wow. How many times? Just once and you said that's enough? Said, oh, fine. Oh, I can't be in your program. I don't need your school. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that, bro. I feel you on that. Okay, so, okay. So you weren't an international business major, but we were taking these foreign language uh, classes. We were also teammates on, you know, competing for men's track and field for the Gamecocks. So that was another way we kind of knew each other. And I want to ask about, in addition to maybe those uh, more domestic trips with the team, was there anything that stood out to you when you traveled to, you know, on your, you know, playing clarinet or up to New York on the East Coast or with the team that said, hey, travel might be something for me because, you know that there are a lot of people, especially I feel like from South Carolina or from some more rural regions that never leave. They don't go anywhere, not even to North Carolina. <laughs> to Scarowins, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's 100% right. And I think having parents that weren't from the South was a, was a great introduction to that. So right. um, when we would learn things in school or you hear how certain people feel about certain issues, realize that you're getting the southern perspective but i knew my parents didn't necessarily feel that way and mm -hmm. go up north to meet family um you know that, that we, you got to see different perspectives and i think that was the beginning and so i thought man if, if that's how it is you know just up and down one coast of the country how different is it in other parts of the country and then imagine in other parts of the world and i realized the world's really big and i kind of wanted to go see it wow that's that's actually really wise i think and 
and really keen of you to recognize that, to say, hey, if just this little slice could be so different than what I grew up from. You know, imagine this played out across the world. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's worked. Um, and definitely with the more and more time that I spend uh, outside of the country, um, the more I have an appreciation for people that are, are different, you know, um, that we don't all have to think the same, and that those perspectives are not as much of a wedge to divide us, but something that can unite us and across our, uh, our differences and our common interests. A hundred percent. So I definitely want to, I'm curious on how young were you when you started going up to New York? Because I mean, y'all believe it or not, I don't know if you ever spent time in South Carolina, but people are afraid to go to New York. Have you, have you heard about this, Chris? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, my mom, uh, my mom's a social worker um, down in South Carolina has been um, the most of my life, but she, you know, even as young as eight, nine years old, I can remember her telling, you know, making it a point that we would travel a little bit or go see things because she would tell me about the kids that didn't have the opportunity to do that, that, that literally had not been from one side of Columbia to the other, and not yeah. the neighborhood. So, um, you know, I really tried to cherish and value those things. But to answer your question, um, yeah, probably that young, about eight or nine years old, I can remember being young. We used to go, uh, you, you, you can probably appreciate this, FAO Schwartz up in New York. That was, uh, yeah. that was the place. And go play on the big piano and hang out in Legoland. But you never mm-hmm. I always got the mega blocks. <laughs> right. <laughs> no Lecos, mega blocks. Hey, you know, less of a choking hazard, right? But that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's a that's a real deal. And I hope some people can relate to that. It's just depending on where you're from and, and kind of how open they are. You know, you got everything you need in a nice southern area. You know, you got the southern hospitality. You got good for you have great barbecue. South Carolina introduced me to what brisket really is. And I'm telling you, like, I'm disappointed by Texas barbecue. It's, Jerry, it's mostly tell, miss. Tell them about the brisket. Man, I, listen, it, it might have been my freshman year. I went out to accompany somebody on a recruiting trip. We took them to a football game. And they took us up to the stadium. And, well, y'all, when I tell you this brisket cut better than butter, it was like, it was like whipped butter. You just put a spoon and you got a whole scoop of meaty, fatty, seasoned goodness. And I've, I've been a change, a changed man ever since. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but the thing that I wish my Southern brethren would understand is that you can't have that for every meal. A hundred percent. But I mean, there are a lot of good reasons to stay home. It's what you know is familiar. You have friends and family there. But you know, there, there's sometimes a fear in between the, the South and the North. You know, New York is too busy for me. Or Northerners, as I can lament, when we come down South, it's too slow. How do things ever get done here? So, you know, the United States is so big and so diverse and has such a deep history regionally that these things can be real barriers from just traveling from state to state. Well, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I think, yeah, I, mean, I think as human beings, we kind of have this innate, desire to kind of stay with what's familiar and what's comfortable but you kind of have to do push yourself and stretch yourself a little bit to to try and explore these things otherwise um your perspective and your life experience will always be limited and um not to say that there's anything wrong with you know enjoying where you started but you should at least be aware of what's out there so that way you can appreciate um what you've got it's, it's definitely a different approach and you've taken that approach so let's let's talk about uh china a little bit what attracted you to go to Beijing in 2010? What, what was it about the culture? Why China out of all the places? So, um, you know, for all the, for all the you know, Chinese government officials listening, 
uh, the precinct. <laughs> All hail the benevolent leader who can do no wrong. Right? Is that how we start this? Because this is definitely censored in, in China. I'm, I'm kidding. Probably. Probably. <laughs> um, but I got a scholarship from the Chinese government um, through the Confucius Institute to go study um, abroad in China for a summer back wow. in 2010. And that, that's kind of was the, the linchpin because while I wanted to go previously, you know, I didn't have the funds to do it. So um, to do it on somebody else's dime was a great opportunity. Um, and, and so that's what I did. Uh, I, I went and did that. And that was kind of cool because I was able to go with some of my classmates and kind of ease into it. Um, and we got to travel around not only Beijing and see all the traditional things there from the Summer Palace to Tiananmen Square to the Forbidden City. But we also went out of the city to a small town called Xiaoxing that I think had a few million people. It's kind of funny they call that a small city. Right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the entire metroplex of Colombia. <laughs> right. oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, that would be more than double Colombia, actually. But, um, but you leave Xiaoxing and then you go to uh, Shanghai for a couple of days. And, and I enjoyed all of that. So I knew that at that point, and the reason why I was really interested in China in the first place was as wanting to be a business major, we were doing these case studies and reading the Wall Street Journal. And you could see that, you know, China was experiencing, this was about 10 years ago, all this huge economic and financial growth. So I figured if I could do business and eventually practice law in both the United States and China, then hopefully that would lead to an interesting career. And um, that's been true so far. A hundred percent. And that's, that's bold of you to, to go do that. You know, our relationship from the United States with China has been a mixed bag for most of the 20th century, uh, to say the least. You know, everything from, you know, communist influences to, you know, business practices and fair trade laws and sweatshops and all this sort of stuff. So there's a lot we don't know about China. And even maybe scarier is the language, bro. You, you try to figure out what's going on over there. You know, everybody, a lot of people in China read English. You look at anything that's in, you know, tra in traditional Mandarin and you're like, I, I have no idea what these squiggles and lines say. Yeah, it's, it's a huge um, competitive advantage that I think, you know, China hasn't even been able to, hasn't even fully realized yet or even really tried to push that advantage yet. But the fact that, you know, a lot of other countries want to access China, but in order to do so, they must speak Mandarin versus, you know, China being one of the top English speaking countries in the world by sheer yeah. Uh, means that they have the ability to access a lot of Western markets, whereas Westerners have a much more limited ability to access Chinese markets. And that's not just because of Chinese governmental influence. That is certainly a, a factor, but it's because Westerners oftentimes lack the understanding of nuances of Chinese culture and especially the language skills. You know, there's a huge deficit of qualified professionals that speak high level Mandarin. A hundred percent. And the ones that do, though, they they realize some excellent business opportunities. I'm sure you'll share that. Uh, I'm sure that's been a part of your experience. But let's talk about language a little bit, because we were in the same Chinese classes for two semesters. And languages might be a knack of mine. But how did, how was approaching the Chinese language for you? Did you feel that school helped you? Was there anything that you were unsure or scared about or concerned about what was that learning experience like for you in school um i think it, i certainly appreciated it because it gave me a, at least a, a decent foundation and that's this day um as it goes to my chinese language and cultural ability but i think going back to my previous point i think that western schools could do 
a little bit better or would do well to think about the, the culture and language. Um, for example, when you, Westerners, especially American schools, approach language a lot of the times, you know, you're Spanish, you're French, you're German. They approach it from, okay, here's a vocabulary list, learn it, um, try and put together some sentences. You don't even really have to try and learn how to speak it that well. You know, you just basically it's just a memory game. Whereas Chinese and really speaking Chinese on a, at a high or even intermediate level requires not only the knowledge of the words, but the memorization of the characters, you know, the fact that the sentence structures can be oftentimes opposite to what it is in English and the, how to pronounce pronunciation is such a huge factor. Um, and then the cultural influences as well. And I feel like that gets lost a lot um, and was kind of muted in our classes at USC even. But yeah, I guess that'd be my biggest gripe is that I think that we could do more to put, put it into context because it's not a Western language and it's not, doesn't come from a Western tradition. Right. And it doesn't have those, uh, Romanized roots in terms of, you know, the character system, and it's also a tonal language. So overall, and, and this is me sharing, you know, my experience with it, but Chinese statistically by the numbers, y'all, is easier to learn than English. That's true. There are less characters, less words, less options. Uh, there's just a lot less to memorize. The sentence structure has no tense. It's different, but actually on paper, it's fundamentally easier. There are less words in Chinese than English. So a lot of us, a lot of people who are native English speakers really miss that and are intimidated. So do you have any tips or advice for somebody who could, you know, possibly learn Chinese one day? How would you start with Chinese? How would you recommend somebody start it if they were curious enough? Well, so <laughs> I know this will sound a bit contradictory, but I, I do think it would start, you would start with just trying to understand you know, a few characters, you know, and it depends on what you're learning for, you know, if you're learning to, to one day be able to speak at a high level, then, you know, might need to start even slower than what I'm about to lay out. But I think if you want to just, you know, learn some survival Chinese, I would do what your, what your Western classes have probably taught you, which is get a vocabulary list, learn some of the basic words, try to string together a few sentences, and that'll get you through. Okay. Okay. So maybe some go-to phrases like, you know, an introduction, I think those are a really good place to start or asking what is this, things like that. Exactly that. Um, but if you're looking to, to really be able to, at some point, use your Chinese for business or to be able to speak at a higher level, then yeah, you need to, one, I would, you know, I'm, no matter where you live in the country, no matter where you're listening to this podcast, even if you're other parts of the world, I'm sure that there's a decent sized or at least a pocket of a Chinese culture somewhere near you. Mm -hmm. And try to identify them and find them because as it would turn out, any culture, any society, they have children typically. Um, and I would ask them, Hey, you know, can I borrow some of the books or some of the tapes or videos that you use to teach children um, Chinese? Because what that will do is that'll make it very simple for you, you know, getting an ear for the language, starting with the components of the characters that are called radicals that are kind of like Latin stems, but they're the stems of the Chinese language. So, once you really understand radicals, you can kind of, quote, sound your way through Chinese characters and understand what words mean without knowing exactly what the word is. A hundred percent. And y'all, that is that's gospel right there. If we ever do something where we break down language learning, because I think out of all my guests, Chris, you probably have the highest proficiency language uh, proficiency ability in a, another language besides myself out of the people I've interviewed so far. And that, that's the exact approach I used to, you know, get my French down was studying children's books, watching cartoons, children's cartoons and mm -hmm. taking it from that, you know, kind of humbling yourself. And it was fun for me. I love cartoons. 
Uh, but dude, you, you're totally on point with that. I hope you guys are taking notes. And well, and then uh, <laughs> what is tough for, especially if you're, you know, an entrepreneurial guy like myself or Jerry, or you're just ambitious um, and you want to get a lot of stuff done. What can be tough is one humbling yourself, but two, as with any skill, you know, you have to respect what you're trying to do. You know, um, you're going to have to invest some time. You're going to have to take some time away and really focus on learning the fundamentals of the language and memorizing the, putting some time for it is what I mean is that, you know, it's 30 minutes to an hour a day and just do that consistently. You'll be surprised how much time you make, but you know, it's not the kind of thing where you just listen to a couple of songs or a couple of tapes that you'll learn it. You know, you really need to put some time aside. Right. That's sweat equity. And I think that that's part of the reason why you've had success the way you have. It, it's sweat equity. It's putting in the work. I'll tell y'all, listen, Chris is a worker. I was a decathlete at USC. Chris was a thrower, a hundred percent, all throws, right, Chris, you weren't, you weren't doing any, you weren't pole vaulting with me. I don't think you were high jumping either. All throws, all throws. I would have snapped that pole, Jerry. <laughs> Chris was a hundred percent dedicated to the throws, but the progress he made from year one to year four, I competed for three years. You were there all four, correct? Well, that's right. And um, to point, you know, for those that may, uh, for those listeners that may not be aware, um, you know, I was what's called a, a preferred walk-on or recruited walk-on. And that means that um, you're not on scholarship, but you were definitely approached in high school about joining the team. So more or less you have to earn your scholarship if you're able to get one at one point and you have to earn your ability to even travel. So I didn't travel my first two seasons. Um, you know, my second season I got injured and that's what kept me out. But the, the third and fourth season that I had there, I was able to run my way onto the field. And that just takes a lot of time um, and effort. A hundred percent. However, not all walk-ons, not all, you know, scholarship people made it from season to season. I just remember, you know, when, when you were talking about the, the work ethic in your Chinese, it, it instantly made me think of how hard you worked your ass off at track and field and getting better at the throws and your progress over four years was significant. Was it not? Well, it was, um, you know, without, without deterring the, the podcast too much, you know, you took somebody, you know, as I mentioned, I was a clarinet player. I was a marching band, hadn't really, touched a weight at all until I got to uh, the college and, um, and I'm throwing against folks that have been playing football and lifting a lot of weights um, to, you know, someone that knows their way around or by my fourth year, someone that knows their way around the weight room. It really understands the physics of throwing and how to move weight. A hundred percent. And it was, it was work ethic. And don't worry about derailing the podcast because we just talk like we just bullshit. We just talk about whatever. But that, that's important. Like people need to understand that some of these qualities that allow you to be successful to if they see you and emulate and have a desire to emulate the success you've had, that work ethic is a consistent theme around your life. It's not just a one time event. Well, and to that point, too, you know, I, I would definitely tip my hat to you. You know, you, you keep the praise on me, Jerry. But, you know, I certainly recall, you know, not only in the on the track, but all the things that you were doing around class, um, both in class and then also just on campus, you know, being in a band. Um, starting your entrepreneurial endeavors up, you know, I, I certainly remember being like, dang, how did Jerry fit all this stuff into a one day? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I slept during class because it was more efficient, but thank you, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> I did a lot of sleeping in college, y'all, a lot of sitting in the front row and sleeping. Um, but let, let's jump back into China. So what was the most shocking thing when you showed up to Beijing in 2010? What sparked your curiosity to say, I have to come back here? Um, well, so I think that's that's two different points. The first one, um, the most shocking thing is that, you know, you might travel abroad. A lot of places you go, especially industrialized places, will have at least some level of 
English or English signage or people to help you out to speak English when you get there. I will tell you, as recently as 2010, you know, if you if you landed in the Beijing airport and didn't speak any English, you know, you I hope you had a friend to help you out or you got the address of where you're trying to go because you know you get into uh, the Beijing taxi and that guy's looking at you and you're looking at him and <laughs> if you don't speak any Chinese, you're not getting anywhere. Um, so that was probably the most shocking thing right off the rip. Um, and I think the thing that made me want to come back is just, I think kind of something that probably speaks to you is that like the level of entrepreneur, the entrepreneur spirit that was there, that you could see opportunity around every corner um, from business opportunities to professional development, to language learning, to uh, just meeting new people. Um, you know, literally almost everything you did in the city kind of gave you this, uh, this feeling of excitement and energy. Wow. And you wanted to be a part of it so much and that you you kind of created a career around it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is not, you know, the typical law school advice. I did my entire third year of law school um, at a Chinese law school. Um, the program was taught in English, but it was at a premier Chinese university, Tsinghua University um, in Beijing in the northwestern district uh, called Wudakul. And yeah, I did my entire last year there, and I was able for a couple of different Chinese law firms, and somewhat starting to get a reputation as a, a Chinese business and and legal practice kind of um, uh, expert. So I've been doing that the last four to five years, and um, and yeah, it was, it was certainly it was a gamble that paid off. We'll, we'll call it that. All right, we we like when we can uh, we can call those big bets. That's what's up. That's what's up. So let's talk about working professionally. So you actually worked in China, right? Yeah, yeah. I worked for two different Chinese law firms. Um, one firm was a was a, a boutique firm that specialized in cross border transactions and and financial uh, work in China. And it was uh, one of the founders was my mergers and acquisitions professor, um, who was one of the creators of the Chinese Investment Council, which is an arm of the Chinese government that purchases foreign currencies okay, uh, for, you know, basically leveraging those currencies against their home nations. Um, and he and I hit it off well, and he ended up giving me a, uh, an internship at his firm. And, you know, I was doing lots of complex contract dra- clause drafting, you know, to protect uh, Western investors against uh, share dilution in their, in their stocks and the transactions, advising and doing due diligence on American law. Um, for some of the Chinese clients that we had. So that was really fascinating. And, you know, uh, not so much there, but certainly in my second job, which was another premier Chinese firm, um, that was all cross-border mergers, acquisitions, and international arbitration. And whenever that firm, whenever we would meet with Western clients, they would always, you know, trounce me out, you know, the one Westerner that we had on the team to say, oh, this is, you know, with American lawyer that we have. And I had to remind them, guys, I'm still a student. I'm getting ready to take the bar. I haven't taken it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, I'm sure uh, between those guys and, you know, maybe an auntie or two, you know, when you really have that proud family member that's like, oh, he's a doctor. He's a lawyer. And you're like, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. This isn't certified yet, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, But but it was kind of, yeah, I mean, anytime that, you know, our team was dealing with a, a Western client, you know, they would involve me even if I wasn't working directly on the matter just to kind of um, bridge the gap and hopefully pick up on cultural things that the Chinese speakers may miss. Wow. What, what's one of the biggest cultural misunderstandings that Westerners generally have about the Chinese or let's say mainland China, because there are some extensions. 
Well, that's right. Um, yeah, that's a good point to make. The difference between mainland Chinese versus Hong Kongers versus Taiwanese. Um, that's those can be huge differences. Um, but I think, you know, with, and I think this can be expanded to a lot of different lessons. I think the biggest difference, uh, or the biggest thing, I'd like people to understand about Chinese culture is that element of of basic trust, and that kind of exudes through a number of things through the idea of guanxi or face which is basically you don't embarrass even if it's an adversary or someone that you don't get along with you don't embarrass somebody publicly um that is the biggest sin that you can commit against somebody and something that when you do that you're pretty much burning that bridge with that person forever and it, it's just dangerous because a lot of people um in chinese culture and society tend to know each other um and that sort of transgression can come back to you in other ways but that basic principle of trust and um, it's something that extends to a lot of different things from there to a lot of times Westerners will get frustrated that a Chinese party won't do business with them, but that's because they don't trust you yet. And you've got to figure out a way to, uh, to, to bridge that gap. Okay. Okay. So how do you think that this element kind of empowers the business culture and success that China's had? Have you, have you seen direct ways that that's, that's been influential? Absolutely. Um, you know, if you've got a Westerner that understands these sorts of dynamics, then you can have a conversation or you can talk to the people in the right way um, in order to get what you're trying to achieve. Because Chinese people are perceptive. They know they may have a good a, they may understand a perfectly what you want or what you're asking about. But if you don't ask the right way, then you won't get any further as if you were a stranger. And a lot of times Westerners try to, to do that, um, to try and force their agenda without putting in the proper face time and um, relationship time. Um, to that point, Jerry, I will mention to you and your listeners, I don't know when this will be uh, posted, but September 24th this year is the Fall Festival, which is one of the biggest uh, celebrations in China. So if you have any Chinese friends, you want to get them a moon cake and send them their way for uh, the Fall Festival. What, bro? That is a major key alert. Hashtag moon cake, hashtag Fall Festival. Y'all, man... See, that, that's the sort of stuff that makes all the difference, bro. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell this anecdote because I don't think the person could be identified. But back in January, I was speaking at a conference for the American Bar Association on doing business in China, in D.C. And uh, a partner from a pretty large firm came and asked me afterwards, you know, he's having this issue getting a Chinese party to sign a retainer. And um, I asked him some basic questions. When's the last time you met them? You know, have you been over there? How much time have you spent there? And then, you know, at first I was thinking, you know, just tell him, go spend some more time over there and, and you know, play the play that game. But then I said, OK, well, you know, maybe you can start it this way. You know, what are you getting them for Chinese New Year? It was January at the time and Chinese New Year was a couple of weeks away. And he says with me with a 100 percent straight face, do you think I should get him something? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, and it's just these, I mean, yes, yeah, these things that will they break a deal for you? Probably not. But, you know, on awareness of it can make all the difference. Well, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And as you predicted, when you were coming up as a student, China's a major economic player. The fact that you can have this perspective and explain it to us in English <laughs> in a way that we understand is is huge man we we can't take that for granted because there aren't many of us out there and especially not many men of color out there and let, let's talk about that a bit did you notice any differences did you notice anything that challenged or expanded your identity while you were out there in china 
Well, sure. Um, in 2010, when I first went, you know, keep in mind, this is two years after the Olympic Games were there in 08. Um, but still, at that point, my, many Chinese people had not met many black people, African or otherwise. Sure. And so, you know, when you're when I'm walking around campus, when I'm taking the subway, getting in cabs, you now people are just staring at me and taking pictures and, you know, wanting to take pictures with me because they hadn't seen black people before. Right. And so that was a little bit jarring at first, because that's certainly the first time I've been somewhere where folks hadn't seen black people before. And that was kind of intense. Um, and then both in 2010 and this carried over even in 2014, you know, I knew that, you know, if I'm wearing a sweatsuit and carrying any kind of ball, people think I'm a real athlete, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm Kobe or something. And, you know, people would ask me for my autograph and I'm like, guys, I just know the discus. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right. All right. It's kind of like a plate, but really heavy. It's, it's not, it's, it's, uh, okay. <laughs> um, and you'll get a kick out of this too, Jerry. I actually hold the shopper record at Tsinghua University. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah damn right listen man get all them records i don't care how that's what's up um but but to finish answering your question um you know chinese people a lot of times because they don't understand and haven't met black people and don't know some of these social cues you know they'll say things to you or ask you about things that they don't understand and maybe might be a little bit tone deaf if it was done in the west you know for example you know um they, because they're only reference point at the movies and television. So they'll ask me all the time if I want to go play basketball, you know, and that's a popular thing in, in China. So, you know, that's not a hundred percent, you know, just because I'm a black male, but you know, that's certainly a portion of it. Or if we go to karaoke, which is another popular thing, they always ask me if I want to sing Michael Jackson or, <laughs> or, right. you know, or if I want to do a rap song. And it's kind of like, I mean, nah, guys, like I, I'm a terrible rapper, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's Chris Campbell, not Kendrick Lamar. What is what's going on here? Exactly, exactly. And so things that you know, if if the, if the white guy or somebody came and asked me about that here in America, I might be getting a little like, "Whoa, calm down, man. You don't know me like that." But, right. You no, know, in China, you know, you understand the the cultural difference and the 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 reasonable lack of understanding because of you know the the demographics. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was in a. It's funny you should mention this. I was in Best Buy yesterday. And uh, I was looking at one of these Google Home products, and the guy was like, you like hip-hop, right? And I was just like, Eric, if they'll get this goddamn demo over, just play the song. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, And another thing, so you you have a very, I I feel, generous nature. You're you're a kind person, Chris. More kind than I am. (laughs) What are some some ways that you're able to, to kind of uh, because and not everybody that that is black or of color in China or Asian countries has a good experience. And some people take it really personally. Do you have any pieces of advice to share in terms of just, hey, I know you have this gut reaction because you're from New York or you're from Cal, you know, you're from the states. How can people give themselves an extra second to say, wait a second, you, things are just different here, and I can maybe make this even a learning opportunity. Well. So, and I'll, and I'll tell you this, and I guess, um, let me, you know, I, I love China. I love my experience in China. I think it's a great place to be, especially for, um, you know, young black folks that are trying to, you know, make their next move or figure out a way to get ahead. But, you know, all of my positive experiences in China don't outweigh the couple of negative experiences that I had as it goes to race. Um, in that, you know, there have been a couple of times where I was denied entry to a, a nightclub because, Basically, they just thought I, I was dressed too black or too urban or whatever. Um, and, you know, white guys or 
you know, Asian guys walking by wearing the same exact thing were allowed in. But, you know, um, the, the, you know, those were negative experiences. And especially when, you know, I'm able to talk to the bouncer in Chinese, you know, and explain to him, like, you know, what's your problem? You know, why are you not letting me in? Um, you know, so, so those types of things happen. And, you know, to your point, you know, how do you calm yourself down and not fly off the handle? I think the biggest thing that you can do, especially if you're a hot-headed person, is kind of try and play mental chess with it. You know, remember those old Sherlock Holmes movies, you know, with Robert Downey Jr., where he, you know, would give these fight scenes and he would, you know, predict what the, how the fight was going to go and mm-hmm. then make it happen. That's kind of what I do is I think, okay, you know, I can, you know, get loud and get rough with this guy, but that's still not going to get me in the nightclub. It's probably going to get me in worse trouble. Or, you know, I can try and think of another way around it, or I can just let it go. And I think the best thing that you can do, you know, simulate what's going to happen in your mind if you react the way that you want to react. And if it's anything less than an ideal ideal circumstance for you, then don't do that. A hundred, spoken like a damn lawyer. That sounds amazing, dude. That is probably the most crisp and concise advice I I could ever hope for. Thank you. Hey, well, you know, I don't trust those lawyers. (laughs) Right? But it's smart, man. That's that's um, that's emotional intelligence, man. That's that's respecting your energy and not spending it, you know, frivolously. That that's really smart. Um, that's really smart, dude. But I also recognize that sometimes that's easier said than done. Right, and that's why you're a nice guy. You're nicer than me, man. Because you know, some people. I don't know. I think some people need to need to have a certain level of maturity before going into a country like that. And I think the you know, where things can be so oppositional if your attitude's not right or you're just not in the right mindset. You feel what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the, the perspective I can add to the conversation now comes from someone that went to China where, you know, I, though I might have been mature when I went, you know, mature from my age, relatively speaking, I definitely grew up a lot more when you're in a foreign country where you're still learning the language and, you know, there's no easy way out. It's not like I can just drive back to South Carolina when you're in the middle of Beijing. Right. Uh, no, no, uh, not this year. Maybe Superhighway coming to a, a country near you, but, but you're right. Knock on wood. Right. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned not getting into clubs because going out and being downtown, I had my first experiences, you know, out in Five Points in Columbia, you know, on the weekends, partying a little bit in clubs. And that was a big deal. You know, dress code for especially black men, how you could dress to get in clubs. You couldn't wear plain tees because of gang affiliation, but you'd see a white guy walk in, no problem. And sometimes I, I think that's a powerful point to, to point out or to mention. I won't use the word point too many times. Because I think people have a hesitation for traveling. They say, oh, why would I spend the money to go out there and not get you know treated the way I think I deserve it to be? And it's like, well, you could have the exact same experience in Columbia, South Carolina. So you might as well see something different. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think exactly that. And I'm sure maybe you've heard um, just through myself or other folks in our timelines, you know, that race issue as it comes to dress code has been a thing that's come up over the last couple of years, especially in Colombia, um, as uh, the racial conversation nationwide has kind of shifted. So, um, you know, once again, it is to some extent deciding, you know, not letting the situation be dictated to you but you deciding how it's going to play out. Um, and I agree, you know, if I can have that situation happen to me in uh, Columbia, South Carolina versus Cuba, for example, or some other beautiful spot in the world, you know, I'm much going to take the, the exotic locale. 
Right. A hundred percent. And you'll, you'll expand yourself just for going out there. You know, um, I think it's a, a great way to look at the other, the flip side of that, you know, <laughs> because if you, if you do nothing different, you're still going to have the same experience. So you might as well just go do something different. Um, I think a hundred percent. That's awesome. That's super awesome. The, there's so much I want to, you know what, Here, here's something maybe you might be able to shed some light on. What are some industries or some skill sets that are in demand in China? You mentioned it being a place that if you're kind of young and willing to put in the work with the language, that it's a place to make some moves from. And I believe that 100% from things I've heard, things I've read. What are some areas that people might be able to plug into quickly over in mainland China? Well, let me say this. You know, I think if you are an entrepreneur, someone that just wants to mix things up, you're unsatisfied with your life, even if you're not that wealthy. Yeah, I would just drop my stuff and go to China because if you can learn the language, you know, it almost doesn't matter what you're interested in. If you're a Westerner that can speak Mandarin at a high level, Chinese people, Western people, there are tons of people that will give you, they'll throw money at you, first of all. Um, but secondly, you know, I think as, good, as, as is good advice worldwide, the financial tech industry is kind of booming right now. You know, if you can understand finance, and apply that with some technical background or you have a technical team that you can build, whether that be through mobile apps or software or something like that. Um, I think supply chain, that's always going to be in demand because um, even with automation, you know, if you have the, excuse me, if you have the ability to, to show companies how to get their products from point A to point B faster, companies like Amazon, Apple, um, you name it, will continue to be in high demand for you, whether you're in China or anywhere. Um, and there are tons of these Chinese companies through Alibaba, um, Baidu, and all these other companies that are based there that are looking for ways to get their products to Western markets. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, the entertainment industry right now in China is getting ready to go through a shift as they try to kind of challenge Hollywood to a large extent in terms of the media and television and movies that they're producing. hundred percent. So all across the spectrum, there are opportunities. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, those... Those would be if I had three things to look into just off the rip, you know, those three things I would immediately pay some attention to. OK, let me throw out a, a classic one for you. How about teaching English in China? How is that market looking? Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So if you are somebody that, you know, you're kind of doing something here, but you're not super satisfied with it and you're looking for an adventure. Yeah. Go do that. You know, there are tons of companies and organizations um, that you can hit up that will uh, fund your move, fund you moving to China or Japan, or another country you're interested in, to learn the language there and to teach at the same time. And they will put you in probably a decent-sized apartment, um, pay you a respectable wage for wherever you are, um, and they'll probably contract you to do that for at least a year. And I will tell you, um, this article made its round about two years ago, but I, I keep it kind of logged away. But there was a, a girl that was in Beijing around the time I was there who was making six figures off of just teaching English in China between teaching and having side clients and everything. What six American figures? No way. American figures, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ones with the U.S. presidents. That's what's up, bro. Right. The opportunity is out there, bro. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. Um, but to the point where we started this whole conversation, if you've never left, if you've never even considered a life or a career outside of where you're from or the United States, you know, you don't even think about those opportunities. You don't even realize them. And the stat that kind of blows my mind, Jerry, and mm -hmm. It's what continues to drive me to be in other places as much as I can is that the entirety of the United States population is only 5% of the world population. Right. 5%. <laughs> um, and so you got 95% of the world out there that is, uh, you know, 
wants to meet you wants to see what you're about <laughs> right and man that that's that's really a that makes you feel in a small place real quick because for us we're kind of we're we're us centric we kind of think things revolve around us and whether or not that's true is the attitude we have and we take it when we travel but you're right five percent that means 95 percent of things on this planet we are naturally foreign to mm-hmm. wow wow uh, so we talked a lot about China, but I do want to ask about one more thing. How did you feel about how did mm, were you able to sense the media presence and influence that the U.S. has while you were abroad? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I, I could speak to that from both being in China and in Europe. Um, in Europe, it's a lot more similar to uh, well, your access to American media is is not restricted. But the, the media coverage is a little bit different in that it's a lot more, there's a lot less spin on the individual stories. Mm. You know, they're more, you know, Chris and Jerry were talking. That's it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say Chris and Jerry conspired on the phone. Um, right. You know, sometimes what a lot of American media might do. Um, and in China, they will show you American media to the extent that it doesn't conflict with Chinese interest. Um, and as you, and a lot of your listeners are probably aware, there's the, this huge censorship issue that goes on in China where they censor stories that are unflattering to the Chinese government. Right. And does that include entertainment media like movies and, and shows and maybe even, you know, cartoons or books? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, you know, anything from movies that have Chinese money, um, having to be rewritten, uh, and, you know, stories, you know, whole stories, story points change so they can fit Chinese televisions or scenes cut, you know, those types of things happen. Um, you have, you know, a pretty tacit awareness that when you're using any sort of internet in China, that you're being monitored one way or another, even if you've got a VPN, um, which is a virtual private network, it's a way of accessing the Western websites while you're in China, that, um, that if you make enough waves that the Chinese government will shut you down, um, you know, that it's, it's it, it does kind of feel like somebody's watching you when you're right there. right and that's the reality of it but that's that's good to know because we do have a very influential media and like you mentioned people are making assumptions about you just off of the images they've seen that's really powerful because when it comes to the reality very few of us are professional athletes <laughs> well that's true. <laughs> that that's very true um and i'll tell you one little anecdote that um it's kind of just uh, illustrative of how, how powerful that effect can be you know, the rest of the world um, in particular understands what happened at Tiananmen Square back in 1989 as, um, you know, this huge, you know, human rights issue and this travesty committed upon the Chinese people that were protesting there. And there were Chinese students that I met in my classes that had no idea what I was talking about, that they understood it to be a peaceful protest and that there were no casualties in that event. Wow. Wow. And for those of you who might not be intimately familiar with Tiananmen Square, you'll see a lot of images of a, a young Chinese man standing in front of a tank. That, that's, a, that's a classic scene from Tiananmen, if I recall correctly, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the fact that, you know, the Chinese students that were uh, camped there, um, a lot of them, not a lot of, but uh, more than a handful were killed in that protest, um, you know, including that individual that was uh, staring down the tank. You know, it's not as if you know, it was a peaceful protest and no one was upset and, you know, all these things. So it, it, there was definitely um, some creative retelling of history by some of the powers that be in China. 
Right. Yeah. So it was it was an uprising. It was a, it was a protest that unfortunately became violent. And there's been some shift in narrative there. And another thing not to get too, you know, woke on all this, we have some shifting of narrative that happens in the States, too. So you guys check your facts, <laughs> read more than one source of news. If that's what you do, just, you know, things can be spun. If it can be done on a mass scale with millions and millions and millions, oh, China has a population of over a billion now. 1.6. Yeah, if it can be done to billions of people, trust me, this 350 million in the States ain't nothing. Uh, sweet, man. Well, dude, thanks so much for sharing all of this great info about China. I, I, I appreciate it so much. I know there are very few with your skill set and expertise and cultural perspective, and I'm really proud of all the adventures I get to see you on. I've asked about China for years. I've been like, hey, what's going on here? What's going on? You know, just in case I want to make a move or, or do something like that. So I appreciate you being willing to share with everybody who follows the show. Well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, keep asking about it. And I will tell you, um, even with my uh, law practice here and good things that I've been able to do, my businesses that I have here, I plan to uh, probably be back in China um, on a more permanent basis um, in the next decade. Awesome, man. I'm looking forward to visiting. And speaking of your other ventures, let's talk about those things because your exploration, your discovery, your curiosity does not stop with mainland China and your career as a lawyer. What else do you have going on? What else do we need to know about? What else is cooking? All right. So, I'll, you know, I've got many interests and we could spend probably a whole nother hour talking about all those other interests, but uh, we'll keep it kind of condensed for now. Um, and I'll talk about four projects that I've got upcoming. Uh, I'll give you the, the short version. Let's of do it. The first, the first is a venture that I've run with uh, another friend of yours, Jerry, and a former um, bandmate. <laughs> former bandmate, yep. We run the Columbia Brew Bus, um, which is a, a beer tourism company here in Columbia, South Carolina, that takes folks around to get a, a good craft beer all around the city. We've got um, close to six. We got six right now craft breweries that are open in the city and with more coming each month um and if you want to find out more about that that's at columbiabrewbus.com excuse me um my that same business partner and i are actually starting another venture in the first quarter of 2019 called feed me now feed me is an app it's a food truck location app where you'll be able to find food trucks your favorite food trucks um at no additional charge and for the food trucks that opt into it, basically, when you're in route to the food truck, place your order. And when you get there, the food's ready. Wow. Wow. Because that's, that's one of the biggest pains in the butt about food trucks is the weight. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and, and knowing where they are, especially if you're in a big city, um, you know, we're starting on the east coast of the United States first and hopefully go worldwide at some point. But, you know, if you're in Prague or you're in Atlanta or New York, D.C., you know, maybe your, fav- your favorite food truck is definitely out there, but where are you? Right, 100%. That's awesome, dude. Um, and then the other two ventures, in a nutshell, these are um, a little bit further down the pipeline. Um, one is an axe-throwing range that will be starting here in Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, be uh, basically throwing hand axes and, you know, drinking some beer, but, you know, being safe about it at the same time. <laughs> well, if I hold my beer in a different hand than the axe, it's totally safe, right? That's That's good. Well, that's right. You don't have to worry about any accidents, bro. Hats off to you. <laughs> Thank you with the, I, I miss this. This is great. Yes. A hundred percent. Don't have to worry about any accidents. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final venture that I'll leave your listeners with is a blog that myself and another lawyer 
are starting up um, that are both former athletes and guys like to lift. And it's called Lawyers Who Lift. And that is a blog that is dedicated to helping um, our brethren in the practice of law uh, learn how to take care of their bodies, eat right, and get swole. Wow. Get them gains up, son. That's right. It's never too early. Well, summer 2019 starts here. <laughs> That's what's up, dude. I didn't know you had – I knew about the brew bus because I was like – I mean, you guys have had write-ups about you. These guys – and Columbia has blown up for microbreweries since I left. There are six in the area and a few more coming, right? Well, that's right. So there's six here right now, um, and, you know, we're expecting – there's a few that are opening up in the suburbs of the Columbia area in Irmo and Chapin and – in West Columbia, but yeah, I mean, Columbia is starting to get a little bit of a brew culture. That's what's up. And the Feed Me app, that's new. The Axe Thorn Range, that's a, that's a national, that's the thing that's sweeping the nation, uh, along with food trucks. And the blog, I mean, to combine fitness and that corporate professional perspective, dude, I'm I'm impressed. And I think the really cool thing and the, the huge value that you have in Columbia is like like I mentioned in the beginning, not a lot of people leave. Not a lot of people leave the state of South Carolina in general, but the fact that you have left, decided to come back and, you know, give it a try to do all these different ventures that, that is going to expose people to different aspects of culture and, and just different experiences that aren't natively around Columbia. Like it's not Los Angeles, you know? Well, that's right. Um, and, you know, I think it starts with having that conversation and, and exposing people a little bit at a time and, and really, you know, and I guess if there's a final point I'd, I'd like to leave is that there's this idea of flourishing where you're planted. So while I have lived and worked in on uh, several different continents and plan to do so again, you know, right now I'm back home, back in Columbia. And, you know, you could take the approach of like, I'm just going to stay to myself and, you know, just work on my own stuff and not really get back to the community in any way. But, you know, I think that that'd be doing everyone a disservice, myself and the community included. So whether it's here or back in Europe, um, in Portugal, or, or back in China, you know, I, I want to leave an impact on every place I go. That's really awesome, man. And it's needed. It is definitely needed. And people don't even realize how much it is needed there. So shout out to you for reinvesting all that experience to the place that you, you really love that place. You love that you're from Irmo. You love Columbia, South Carolina. You love the Gamecocks. You're the perfect man for the job. Well, I appreciate that. And I've got a question for you, Jerry. When are we getting you back here in Soda City? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I am overdue for a trip to Greenville. And Columbia is right next door. I'm working through some things right now. We will definitely touch base. But uh, hopefully not before long. There's a lot of people I haven't seen in a while. And, you know, life changes. And I've learned the value of keeping up with people while you're still able to. Absolutely. Uh well, thank you for having me on the show, Jerry. I appreciate uh, you giving me this platform to, to address the kind people that listen to your podcast. And I have to chat with you about doing a podcast sometime. I might be interested in doing that myself. 100%, man. You know I'm here to help. Actually, what will help with, the, uh, with getting to Columbia, when is it too cold to ride the brew bus? And can I bring gin? You, one, of course you can bring gin. And two, you know with South Carolina, it's never too cold to ride. It. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to, to keeping in touch. I'm, I'm enthused. Like I said, I had, a, I had a late night last night. But every time I do one of these shows, I just get filled with so much energy because that, that's what you're sharing is positive energy, dude. So thank you so much. Uh, dude, I'm, I'm proud of you. And 
I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and partying in China one day. Absolutely. Hey, Jerry, appreciate your time. Talk Man, to you later. ciao. Thank you. All right, bye. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Chris Campbell out here dropping major knowledge darts out here for the culture. Thank you so much for being on the show, bro. Like I, like I said before, I'm just impressed with how much you've accomplished, how much you're into. Oh, he's got four different ventures he's trying to pop off with before 2019. Like that's a big deal. So make sure you check him out on Instagram, Team Like the Soup. Definitely check out the Columbia Brew Bus at uh, ColumbiaBrewBus.com. I know they're doing great things. I know his other business partners as well. All great guys putting together quality, interesting things for the city of Columbia. And for those of you guys who might not know, the Chinese government is trying to get more tourists to come over, especially American tourists. So flights are pretty affordable going over there between four, maybe $600 if you get a decent deal. And hopefully you can use this show as a point of reference for some of what to expect or how to navigate a little bit when you get to China. If not, hit up Instagram and find uh, Chris. He'll be out there. So this has been another great session here at Point Noir. So glad you guys were able to join us. We'll see you next week with another amazing guest, another amazing session. And this is Jerry the Third, a.k.a. Kimono Jack, signing off.